Hello, and welcome to Ben Yo Chats. If you're curious about the world, this show is for you. What was it like to run a hospice when the pandemic struck? On this episode, I speak to Claire Montague. Claire was the Chief Operating Officer of Royal Trinity Hospice, London's oldest hospice. We chat about her time running the hospice over the pandemic and her former career as a government special advisor. If you enjoy the show, please like and subscribe as it helps others find the podcast. Thank you. Be well. Hey, everyone. I'm super excited to be speaking with Claire Montague. Recently, Claire was the Chief Operating Officer of one of London's largest hospice groups, and formerly she was a UK government minister special advisor, which we call SPADS. Claire, welcome. Thank you, Ben. Thank you for having me. So when running a hospice, why is cake important? (laughs) So I think this is one of the things that I've said sort of uh, on LinkedIn as well, is that actually cake is kind of what makes hospices go round. Um, It's interesting. It's I think of cake as being, you can be very sort of flippant about it and say it's all just about sort of baked goods and increasing our our waistlines. But we use cake a lot in the hospice to celebrate and to say goodbye to staff or to celebrate birthdays or to celebrate promotions. And it's a very good opportunity for people to come together. And we also use cake as a way of being able to talk informally about things that are often really difficult within a hospice context, but become easier over cake and tea. And the other reason that cake is really important is that uh, a lot of our the, the hospice patients and their family members as kind of bring cake as a gift of gratitude um, to staff and fa- uh, in, in the hospice, um, whether it's the nursing staff or the porters or anyone who's helped out with them. And I think that idea of gift, of giving something, particularly something that's been homemade, although not always, something that is sweet, something that is, is a gift of gratitude, it goes at the heart of what the hospice is about. It's about, it is about giving and it's giving of, to our patients, but it's giving to each other. And it's about sharing too. And I've also found when speaking to people involved in the hospice world, you're very straightforward in your language. So you're using the language of death, trying really not to over-medicalize it, but essentially being, I guess, what consultants would call plain English, but to be more straightforward about it. And I think there's something about this dance around we have, particularly in developed countries, um, about talking about death and and the like. Uh, How intentional is this? And do you think it's quite an important part about thinking about the world of hospice and the world of death? Yeah, I think it's, it is very intentional and I think it is critical. Um, we are were at the hospice very clear that we do not talk about people passing. You pass exams or you pass someone in the street, someone dies. And, and we talk about death and we talk about dying. We don't talk about loss. Um, and we might talk about grief and loss, but we don't talk about having lost someone. Having said that, in a hospice environment, you also have to be very clear that you follow and and support the way in which people talk about death themselves, particularly when they are very, um, that they're grieving and they're they're at a point of very high emotion. So there's a sort of careful balancing act between not being being very clear and upfront and ramming it down someone's throat when they want to talk in euphemisms. But I think there's a broader point for many of us who work in hospices or in similar environments where we're very used to talking about death. 
it is it's so striking how in as you said in developed and western countries we don't talk about death at all very few people have actually seen a dead body and even within the medical environment even within hospitals you'll get mainstream doctors are not great at dealing with death they're very good at dealing with disease and how to kind of treat people they're not great at preparing people for death and so part of a hospice mission as experts in death is also to normalize and, and make clear you know this is the one thing that is going to happen to us absolute dead cert irrespective of who you are and what you do and so actually the, the sooner we start talking about and breaking down some of those myths and actually call a bit of a spade a spade it's more important people start to understand what's going on and they start hopefully to become less fearful of it for themselves and for other people but it, it's really important. I mean, other words, we don't use, we don't talk about the deceased either. We talk about people who have died or someone who has died. And again, I think it's really important to be plain speaking, but to do it with, with degree of love and respect. You know, the deceased is someone who is a thing. Someone who has died was a person. And it's important that we acknowledge that. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Because the joke is that what's inevitable is death and taxes but actually as we've seen billionaires can avoid taxes so <laughs> yeah. it's not quite as inevitable as it might seem even even billionaires die yeah <laughs> exactly um so we're probably, we're going to cover how uh, your life was um i guess into pandemic which is which is still going on but particularly from the point of view of running a hospice but i, I thought it might be useful to get maybe give people a glimpse of what a pre-pandemic kind of day in the life of a of a hospice or at least from your view because obviously you've got frontline yeah. workers you know cleaners staff porters care nurses and then obviously you've got management and and all of that yeah uh, but maybe a, a little glimpse of of what a, a hospice kind of functions like sort of pre-covid because then we can sort of talk about then when the okay. pandemic happened how sort of dramatic a change and yeah. um and potentially the challenges and in the, in the gaps of of state capacity that that there might have been so yeah sure. a, an ordinary so, pre pre 2019 day <laughs> pre, pre 2019 day well i think the first thing to say which i mean was a surprise to me when i started working in the hospice because i hadn't worked in that environment before, is most people i think assume that hospice is a building and it's the building where you come to die and i think the two sort of big myths that we start off with is that yes we are a hospice building and we have beds but actually the vast majority of the care that we gave to people was in their own homes. Because most people want to be looked after in their homes and can be supported to be looked after in their own homes. So the vast majority of our work was actually in the community. So we had nurses and doctors and physiotherapists and social workers and a full gamut of sort of health and care professionals. And a large amount of our patients, they may have come into the hospice building either on an outpatient basis or into the beds, but actually many of them would never have come in at all. And we were going to look after them in their own homes if that's where they wanted to be looked after. And I think the other thing that people are always surprised about is that, and people are very fearful often of hospices because they do think that that's it, you know, their days are up. Yes, people were coming into the building who were then going to die in the hospice. But again, even those who came into the beds into that we had a 28-bedded 20, unit at Trinity Hospice, 40% of those patients would leave again because they would come in for some specialist care. Maybe they had symptoms that couldn't be supported at home. They were in a lot of pain and they needed sort of specialist support that you would only get within a very clinical 
squared environment or that a family couldn't cope or their high degrees of anxiety. And actually, when we got them better, supported that particular problem, we were then able to support them to go home again. And most of our, all of our patients had a what we would call a life-limiting condition, which means a condition from which they will eventually die. So they have a terminal diagnosis in layman's terms. But a lot of our patients were on our books for months and even years. And we wanted to get people involved in the hospice early because the earlier we saw them, the more we could help. And so your involvement with the hospice, you know, if you, if you were diagnosed with say a terminal cancer, a, a cancer that was not treatable, you wouldn't necessarily be days off death. You would come to us. And one of the things that we might do is we might start talking to you about where, you know, if you're in a position to be able to do this and not everyone is, where do you want to die? We might start doing some care planning with you. How do you want to be looked after? Where do you want to die? We might be doing some kind of support with you, psychological support to help you come to terms with your diagnosis and the fact that your life is going to end and, and also to provide some of that support to your family. We might help you do memory boxes for your kids. We would do quite a bit either on an outpatient basis or in people's homes to keep them fit and well, so physiotherapy, occupational therapy. And one of the things I always used to say, if you think about the purpose of a hospice, we were there to help people have the best life that they could have for as long as they've got left. We were there to support them to have a good death in whatever way that meant for them. And we were there to support the people who were left behind. So a lot of our work was with patients who maybe would have had months to, to live. And so we would provide an awful lot of sort of support and advice, and that might be physical and that might be emotional, it might be practical, to help them prepare themselves and their families until the point came when they were in their last few weeks, days. And then when they were in a getting to the point at which they were going to die, some people, many, many people prefer to die at home. And we would mostly be able to support them to do that. Um, or they wanted to come into the hospice for whatever reason, they didn't want to die at home. And again, that was a place they could come. And then after that was all over, we would be working with families and providing grief and bereavement support. But I think one of the things that's completely, I mean, hospice is weird because it's, it's, it's a, we were a charity, um, independent, and we employ staff who are in, trained through the NHS, but the, the ethos of a hospice is very different from the NHS. The NHS is a brilliant institution, but it is, it is by its nature a ration state service. With the hospice, we were all about doing whatever it took for you to make the end of your life worth living. And so it meant we could go above and beyond for individuals. So for example, we might have, we had uh, patients who wanted to renew wedding vows and um, we could arrange that for them within the hospice environment we even were able to arrange at the last minute uh, within 36 hours a wedding for a young man who was by that stage only a week or so off dying who wanted to uh, marry his long-term partner and we were able to organize a cake and a registrar and we could sort of arrange the, the, the bed so that he could come to it and his you know family came in their fascinators or whatever we had uh, we had a, a lady who was a, a keen outdoors person and she her thing was she wanted to die under a tree and she was in our beds and she didn't have anyone who took any family around the place so we made sure that we sat with her and at the point at which the nurses and doctors deemed that she was probably only a few hours of death we wheeled her outside into the hospice garden so that she could die under a tree. And that for me sort of really epitomizes what the hospice is about because you can't do that within an NHS environment. They're just not the resources. And frankly, no one would have known or, or checked whether or not we were able to fill that lady's dying wish, but actually that was what was meaningful to her. So that was what we were about. 
Um, I think the other thing to say about hospices pre-COVID is that because we very much believe in sort of busting the myths about death and dying, we were very open to our community. So we had people coming and going all times. We didn't have visiting hours. You families could come and stay. Um, you could bring your pets. There was just, we, we are staffed 24 seven and you can come and go as you want. We had a cafe, we had a glorious two acre garden. And we very much wanted to be seen as being part of the community and, and, and open 24 seven, 365 days a year to our community, either for visiting or for spending time with people when they were dying. Obviously when COVID happened, all of that changed, but it, it, it was and remains the most extraordinary service when you are a part of it in terms of being able to go above and beyond for individuals to make the difference that they need. Those are some extraordinary uh, stories and it really strikes me there's sort of two or three reflections I have immediately. Uh, one was how uh, the sort of medicalization of, of healthcare through the sort of mainstream profession because the NHS is all about yeah. not dying and actually strangely hospices are all about living a good death as it were yeah. you know not yeah. um not undying um maybe we touch on the economics of uh, hospice just before going into COVID in in that I was uh, really astounded to find that particularly in uh, a place like the UK which believes in in NHS and uh, sort of state supported healthcare mm. that hospices are not supported really uh, by the state at all and to your points that actually hospice care gives people some of the most best most fulfilling moments of their life uh, in a way which gives this total care thinking about social and environment and other determinants of a good life or a good mm. a good death which NHS for its resources and its mission doesn't necessarily uh, think about. Um, so I don't know if you want to have a few comments about how hospice care is actually funded. Uh, I guess we're talking, particularly talking in, in, in the UK or, or, or London and, and England, um, how, how maybe that might, might change or thinking about state capacity. And, and, there, and therefore, I, you know, is, uh, is this care actually very expensive if you wanted to do mm. it some other way? I mean, is, is having a, a good death something which is kind of out of our, our, our reach? And, and maybe that's why the state... Um, is is having to do that. Obviously, there's a big debate here in England about how to fund social care in, in, in general, but maybe touching about your thinking about whether this should be state supported, that good state capacity here would be there. Mm. And does this just cost an awful lot of money? It does cost an awful lot of money. I think it's a really interesting debate. I mean, hospices in the UK and England grew up sort of through a charitable route. And in fact, we were, I mean, we were called Royal Trinity Hospice. We we did we 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 grew up as an Anglican denomination. I mean, we'd been non-denominational for sort of 40 years, but very many hospices grew up through good works traditionally by the church or by nuns. So who were looking after the idea of people who were going to die. And they weren't doing anything really other than providing loving care because there wasn't a kind of palliative medicine um, in, in those times in the sort of beginning of the late 19th century, beginning of the 20th century. So these, these sort of institutions grew up through a sort of charitable route. And, and at the same time, they also there was also a kind of the development of palliative medicine within the UK, a sort of understanding about what it meant to palliate people rather than just continue to treat and then have them die because 
they couldn't be treated anymore. There's a sort of difference. And I think it's been a sort of accident that therefore hospices have grown up primarily to be charitably funded with often with some state support, but not much. So pre-COVID Trinity Hospice turned over about 15 million pounds and of about, I would have said about three to four of that came from the, no, yeah, three to four of that came from the NHS. And the remainder of that, we had to either fundraise ourselves through donations, or we also had a, a, a string, I mean, we still do, had a very large number of charity shops in London, which brought in a significant amount of money for us. And I think it's an ongoing issue that is probably not resolved, not part because, again, it goes back to at the heart that we don't really want to have a conversation about what do we want for our death in this country, because actually the, the conundrum of hospices is a part of this much bigger picture. Because on one level, you say we we had a clinical care service. We we all our staff were trained by the NHS. We had to pay NHS rates. We had a huge amount that looked like the NHS. And actually, in this country, in the UK, we say that uh, healthcare is state funded and is free at the point of use. The hospice was certainly free at the point of use, and therefore should be NHS funded. And the NHS didn't fund anything like the actual cost. Having said all of that. So that, that was an ongoing beef for us, that we were providing essentially what was a, a kind of state healthcare service, and we were regulated by the same uh, regulator and all of that, and that actually this was not recognised. But having said all of that, we also prided ourselves, as I've described, in being able to provide the kind of service that the NHS could never in a million years provide, and that you cannot provide in what is a rationed healthcare service. I mean, the idea that you could take a healthcare assistant out of an NHS ward and get them to sit with a patient until they died or until the point at which they nearly died in order to make sure that they died under a tree would just be for the birds within an NHS environment. And yet that kind of ethos that this is what we're about is that we will go that extra mile is really, really important to our space. And I think it's very hard to sort of disaggregate then what is the state bit and what is the charity bit? Because you also, we valued hugely our independence to be able to say, these are the kind of services that we want to provide. This is the kind of support that we want to provide. And you can't do that when you're within a kind of state funded healthcare environment. I think certainly hospices are underfunded by the by the state compared to the service that they do provide but I think until we as a society really step back and say this is we think palliative care and preparing for death is something that we want to prioritize we can't really unpick what the funding is because the funding is just a symptom of the kind of muddle and everyone just prefers to sort of leave it there. And, and it is also not something that is as politically salient because most people don't come into contact with hospice. Most people don't have experience of either death in hospital, thankfully. You know, it's not as politically salient as taking a kid to A&E or being on a very long waiting list while you're trying or not seeing your family doctor because of COVID, you know, all of those things are going to be much more important in terms of political priorities for both voters and for politicians. So I think I think it's all part of our wider inability to deal with death problem. And did I hear that correctly? You had an operating budget of about uh, 50 million or was that 15? 15, one five. No, one five. And, one and, five. and 15 million and that would, that would serve maybe a, a few thousand patients a year? Yeah, or? I mean, that's the other thing. Yeah, absolutely. And when you start looking at our kind of cost per patient, it was sort of astronomical. Um, it really was. And, and we, we, we were looking after two and a half to 3,000 patients per year 
on that kind of operating budget. Now, some of that operating budget, that 15 million, was actually also the operating costs of raising funds. So but we yes, also exactly. had to annual shops and things and, and shops yeah. and all of that. So actually, if you looked business. at the, the sort of hospice care bit, it was probably, you know, if you if you knocked off the cost of generating funds, the fundraising department and the shops, it was probably more like 10 million pounds. Um, but you know, you've still got 10 million pounds shared between about sort of 3000 people. That's, yeah, not a huge amount of, you know, that's a, that's quite a significant cost per person. But then equally, the, the I mean, putting aside all the bells and whistles stuff and the 24, you know, the lovely sort of visiting and the, the chefs on site and all those other bits which make up a hospice, we were there to provide specialist care. We're, we were in a NHS terms, we're what's called tertiary care. So you've got your primary care, which is your family doctors, your secondary care, which is a hospital. And when you go into sort of specialist care, that's often called tertiary care. So it was something that was grafted over and above your bog standard hospital provision. And that's why it was an expensive resource. And, you know, for example, doctors in hospices use morphine in a completely different way from doctors in hospitals and, and in primary care. Often primary care colleagues were very shocked at the levels of morphine that were used in, in a hospice environment, you know. It's just a very different way of looking at things. And I think to, to be maybe radical on the other side for one second, as, as a nation state which has decided on, on the point of view for healthcare, uh, I definitely think this should be funded. Um, I guess on the other side of the coin, though, if this is going to be difficult, would a, would a model where this was kind of somehow privately funded ever work? Or the sort of, I, I guess you would have free market people saying, well, you know, if you want to pay for dying under a tree, then you should, then, then you should pay for it. I, I don't suspect that does work, but is, is, is that something which could possibly work? It's interesting. We look. We we had at various points because we had an ongoing sustainability issue. You know, we've got we had huge volatility within our income streams and basically a flat cash from the NHS, which basically means real terms cut in your budgets because obviously inflation and, and particularly healthcare inflation costs. So we were always debating what were our kind of opportunities for new income streams. I think. I think one of the things that becomes very hard, and it is, again, it's like the mixed model of hospice provision, when you say, what is the charity bit, what is the kind of bells and whistles bit, and what is actually just the state healthcare stuff, it becomes very hard to get people to want to insure themselves, or to pay for the bells and whistles when it's grafted on as, as an integral part of what also resembles, I mean, we wouldn't say bulk standard healthcare, but healthcare that is state funded. And I think one of the things that we struggle with, also one of the things that we found is because of the myths around hospices, a lot of the time people of all sort of stripes and backgrounds were very reluctant to come into a hospice because they thought this was, you know, they would be discharged from their, say, oncologist and they'd be referred to hospice and they thought, oh my God, this is it. I don't want to engage with this. And actually nearly always what people said is, I wish I'd known about this sooner. And it was important to us that we were able to see people sooner because we could do more to support them. I think there would be a real potential of people not valuing hospices and, to, and, and therefore not choosing to pay for it because they didn't know enough about them in the first place and it's only after the event people realize how important it is and of course I think the other thing that's really important about the the kind of care that we provide to people both up to and including their death is also the support that we gave to families afterwards because actually having knowing that your loved one has has planned for their death has had a good death in in whatever way that means for them and then getting the support to be able to deal with the grief the inevitable grief that comes is what is going to enable you as a family member to move on from 
the, the, the death of someone. And we all know people who have never been able to move on from grief. And it's an, it's an integral part of being human, but it's also something that you can move on from and you can grow through but not everyone can, you can get very stuck in it. So I think, I think it's, but I think until you've been in that experience, it's very hard to say, this is something I want to purchase. Yeah, um, I can, I can really see that. And I hadn't, uh, I hadn't heard that articulation before because I can now see it. The cost of administering a few weeks of generic morphine is something like, you know, a basic cost, which you could, you know, could plan for, uh, you know, everything else, very, very difficult to do. And it does recall to me something that I read, um, I paraphrase um, from a US doctor, um, Atal Gawande, uh, and he's done some sort of studies into this and mortality, this idea that when you give up on the medicalization part, sort of when you stop trying to die so hard and actually start trying to just live out the last bit of your life, yeah. you actually find you live longer. All of the stats say that those who enter sort of um, end of life hospice type of care actually find that versus other controls they're living sometimes months yeah. or weeks longer than yeah. they would be expected to presumably because of all of this other care which is around this either the social determinants yeah. or or some of these other things or 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 the fact that actually medicalization comes with a lot of side effects which might not be providing any more yeah. benefits but you're providing all of this yeah. other I think, I think that's like true that. and I, th I think I think all of this stuff becomes very difficult to quantify but without question if you are you know the, the, there is absolutely something about treating and treating and treating and some of the kind of side effects that come with that even if or even palliating through a kind of traditional hospital environment um, the other thing is that hospitals themselves are not very geared up to supporting people to die I mean, I would always say someone do try not to die in a hospital environment. They're not, if you can avoid it, that it is not a great place to die. And I think the, the kind of getting to an environment where both there is more comfort, there is more support, and there is more psychological support for preparing yourself, people, I think you, you can sort of relax into, if you like, and that in itself can help, particularly if you're not physically suffering from the effects of treatment. I think the other thing to say with all of this is it's a very inexact science prognostication. I mean, all my medical colleagues would say, particularly with younger patients, you know, you, you try and say you've got X months, you know, people always want to know how long have they got left. And, and the kind of palliative medicine community would talk about long months, short months, long months, long weeks, short weeks, that was kind of about as good as you get. And if you've got someone who is actually younger and physically healthier, it's often, they often, that kind of prognosticating is, is often really challenging because you may have a condition that is going to take you on one trajectory, but if your underlying organ strength is quite good, that may take you much longer to die. I think the other thing with all of this that is really tricky, it's a bit analogous to the debate about social care that's happening in England at the moment which is none of us know how we're going to die, just as none of us know how we are going to deteriorate as we get older. I mean, we might be lucky enough to just die in our sleep, or we might be unlucky enough to have a terminal condition, in which case you'd be going through a sort of hospice pathway, or you might have that sort of middle road of sort of deterioration and possibly dementia and multiple comorbidities and being sort of sick and elderly for quite a long time. And so we, we I think there's this other thing about modern life where we plan and think we can control for so much in our lives. And the one thing we cannot control or know is how we are going to deteriorate as we get sicker and, and how we are going to die. And so even when you think about things like insurance models, whether that's in a social care environment or in a death environment, it's very hard to know what, you know, do you start putting aside significant amounts of money for an eventuality that may never materialize? 
And yeah. also, what if you haven't put up enough money and suddenly you've become one of these people who is, particularly when you're sick, physically sort of healthy, but, but, but mentally declined and unable to look after yourself and in that state for a prolonged period. Because again, we all know people who've been sick and elderly for a very long time, but haven't got actually died. You know, it, it's a really difficult set of issues, I think. Yeah, I haven't quite appreciated that complexity. Well, that kind of brings me on to the pandemic. And if it isn't uh, too uh, traumatic <laughs> to relive that again, maybe you can offer some thoughts as to how it affected both the front line of running a hospice and, and everything and some of the challenges that we saw of lack of state capacity, um, I guess, particularly in the early stage, but it, it seemed to run through and just what your impressions were of um, running you know, a hospice in London at, at the time of the pandemic mm. happening. Oh, it was, I, I'm, I'm, I'm over it now, but it was, it was really, it was really hard. It was really horrible. I mean, I think, I think so trying to group some of this stuff thematically, I think for all of us involved, I mean, you could see this wave of coronavirus coming, but no one really knew how it was going to land until it actually, you were in it. And by that stage, it was all far too late. And so we experienced what many healthcare facilities experience. So we had patients who were dying of COVID. And as an aside, yes, a lot of our patients will have died anyway, but actually you don't want people to die of COVID. Some of them died prematurely of COVID. So yes, they were on a trajectory, but that doesn't mean that they were going to die at that point. They might've had a period months of time longer. or long months, months even. Long months or whatever it is. Um, it's not necessarily a way in which we would want people to die. It's not the, the way that we would choose people to die. You know, so I think there was a sort of myth, some people that, well, you know, they're all going to die anyway. Well, no. You know, so we had patients dying of COVID. Um, we had, for the first thing, and of course, that was a whole wholly new sort of thing for us about how do you care for people who are dying for, of COVID. And that was both people in the community and people at, in our hospice beds. Um, and this all sort of happened at once. We also obviously had the thing where staff were themselves getting sick, either from within the community or, or from with it, although we didn't, we don't think we had much transmitted within the hospice, but, but staff were getting sick. So we had operational problems with staff shortages and we had immediately um, real problems with access to PPE, particularly masks. Um, <coughs> and I think one of the things that became really difficult quite quickly is is that things were changing daily and trying to keep up with national guidance where you had to order PPE from, what PPE you were supposed to wear, how you were supposed to manage COVID, how you dealt with staff because at the time there was no testing. <coughs> All of that sort of change was changing quite quickly. And so we had staff who were often very nervous, very scared patients who were dying, no one really knew what was going on and no national guidance really that we could work towards. So there was this real sense of being completely out of control with a, a kind of wrestling with an octopus that you just had no idea when it was going to end and how it was going to end. We had, I mean, and, and there was sort of operational problems that came sort of thick and fast with, with, um, with COVID. So, I mean, obviously we, we had the sort of the healthcare stuff, we had PPE, we also had, at the time that people were stockpiling in supermarkets in the UK and in the US, for example, the death industry was also starting to stockpile. And we had a mortuary at the, uh, the hospice and suddenly you couldn't get body bags. 
And so I had to make decisions quite quickly about whether we start stockpiling body bags, for example, because actually, you know, it's not really a way in which you want to go about things, but you had no idea what was going to, you know, we had a reasonable supply, but we had no idea what was going to unfold and whether we were going to start seeing waves and waves of sort of people who were dying. I mean, there, there was a personal thing for me in the first couple of weeks where I was working such ridiculous hours that I couldn't get access to food. And my 77-year-old father, who got, got his vulnerable early access to the supermarket to go and buy me food because I couldn't feed myself um, because I, every time I went to a supermarket, there was it was completely out of fresh food because of the hours I was working and everything was sort of stockpiling. But there was just, it's really hard to sort of describe in a way that makes sense, but there was just, there was this sense of things coming just thick and fast and, and no one knowing what there was to do. And so therefore we felt normally there is someone you can ring or there's a website you can search or there's some national guidance or someone knows something, or you can kind of work out a problem. I mean, that's the nature of operations. And there was just none of that. And so it felt very much like I was on my own. And there was one day when, um, at the end of March, when we had been promised a drop of PPE, we were running low on masks. And we had two days where the PPE hadn't come and we had less than 24 hour supply of masks. And we just didn't know what to do because we were going to run out and we had patients with COVID. And at one stage, I mean, it's laughable now, we were Googling what you could do with incontinence pads and masking tape. And actually what we did was we rang around our local dentists, all of whom were closed at the time and, and blessed them. But luckily for us, because we're a hospice and there was a huge amount of support for, for healthcare, we got a donation of a thousand masks, which kept us going. But even then, once we got that, I didn't know when the next drop was coming. And so there was this constant sort of hand by mouth existence. On the same day, um, funeral directors were not picking people up from a mortuary and the mortuary was full. So I started to ring around, you know, does anyone know what the kind of London resilience plan, because this fundamentally is a sort of public health issue and there must be, I don't know, the army gets involved or something because you can't have people who are dead not being managed through a sort of throw foot system. And, and again, Everyone I spoke to in the NHS or in funeral directors, no one seemed to know what were the arrangements for managing people who were dead. I mean, a lot, you know, from whatever reason, uh, in a kind of emergency. And also on the same day, 70% of our income had dropped overnight because we stopped, because we had to stop all our fundraising and our shops closed. So very, very quickly as a charity, our money dried up. And also on the same day, my finance director came and said, we can't make payroll. And, you know, a lot of this stuff sort of resolved itself eventually. Uh, we, we had some savings and we had some reserves and we launched an emergency appeal. So we were eventually able to get some money in and we were able to make payroll. And eventually the PPE did start coming. I mean, I did make a decision to hire a temporary mortuary to sit in the car park because I just, I couldn't bear the idea that we didn't have any answer to the problem of people who were dying, who were dead and, and that not being dealt with. But those were sort of quite a traumatic sort of set of events and I mean that was the worst sort of example of it but there were days where those things kept coming thick and fast and you you just had to sort it out yourself because no one else was helping and meantime the government were getting up on the television and saying there was quite enough PPE to go around and of course in between all of this as a leader I had a lot of staff who were very scared and you know it, it was I, I couldn't make it okay. And, and that's fundamentally when you've got staff who are scared and they're looking to you. And all I can say is 
I, I'm we're doing the best I can. You're doing amazingly. I'm really sorry. Let, let's just keep going day by day. And that was that was grim. It seems extraordinary, and maybe not so much now in hindsight, but the the lack of or even the wrong direction that state capacity uh, went into. This is, I think, a lot of us, I certainly had assumed that in this area, there was state capacity or there was going to be state capacity. And then, you know, speaking to you when you realize, okay, there is no state capacity uh, or there's no organization and there is no plan. Um, and you eventually got somewhere but but even there, it seemed that it kind of cobbled together, ground up because people yeah. realized, okay, we, we need to put in place something, and it and it and it traveled, and it traveled that way. So when the answers did eventually come, did it did it still come in a did it actually even come in a in a joined up uh, fashion? Yeah. I'm kind of assuming not because that was my yeah. impression. But for someone yeah. working on the ground, is 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 that really was that? No, really... I th I think everyone was cobbling something together, and I, I mean the. And I think everyone was cobbling something together, whether you were in your local NHS or you were kind of NHS central or you were in a local authority or wherever, I think everyone was trying to adapt. And, and that will be true for businesses who were, um, you know, at the last minute trying to send everyone home and work out, you know, who didn't have enough bandwidth or didn't have enough Microsoft licenses or no one had ever got teams working. You know, everyone I think was having to kind of cobble this together because it came so quickly, I think it felt very acute on the front line in healthcare. Um, and you did just sort of have to sort of, I mean, there are some interesting reflections, like we had a whole load of business continuity plans. And as COO, it was my job to make sure that we sort of occasionally ran a major incident, so, but they were all geared towards major incidents, you know, that there's a bomb or that there's something going off and that we now need to provide capacity within the NHS. There was nothing that was really geared to a kind of prolonged national sort of, disaster I think I mean I, I'm very conflicted I mean I you know the, the, the government had a pandemic plan but they were all planning for flu and you know I, you can you can sit there with hindsight and say well you should have been planning for every other kind of pandemic I think there is a genuine problem that I remember from my government days about the more money you put into planning stockpiling capacity resilience is is money that you have an, a fixed amount of money and that can either go directly to the front line to services now, or it can go into the never, never. I mean, it's, it's your basic insurance problem that you have. The more money you put into capacity for a possible eventuality that may never materialize is money that is foregone that could otherwise be spent on the front line. And I do think those decisions are quite hard for politicians. I think the real issue for the health service, for particularly social care and particularly local authorities is that the state had been denuded for the last, 10 plus years and when you are asked to take cut after cut after cut you have no capacity at all of any description and I think one of the things I mean I would say this given wouldn't I given my political background but actually surely coronavirus shows us that the only guarantor really of safety and security and services is the state and actually unless you fund those services properly they are not able to respond there is but just no capacity in them. Your articulation about putting oneself in the place of the decision maker or the politician, I hadn't heard before, and actually makes a lot more sense. As in, we saw in like in hindsight, I think you had this in the US, they had ventilator contracts, but they cancelled them two or three years in because they were very costly. And it's, well, these ventilators are sitting around doing nothing. But, yeah. And we know we would get a return now because essentially we're un, underfunded or you can yeah. always... Yeah. 
Well, you can always hire another diabetic nurse and you're going to do some some good with that because you've got an almost infinite demand uh, for where you are in healthcare. And I, I could see, you know, you know, why would we necessarily stockpile 10 million masks in a country when most of yeah. the time it's seemingly uh, you, you wouldn't, you, even on a seven to 14 year cycle. Um, I, like you say, that's an, an insurance problem. Um, maybe that brings me to the thinking about, um, you know, we are where we are now, as uh, politicians kind of always like to say, and looking in the, looking forward to the future, um, there has been a lot of talk about being more prepared for either future pandemics or or other of these kind of global coordination or country coordination uh, type of uh, type of problems, and a lot of people said, well, we should look at some more of this insurance or state capacity, and I think it's a good idea. But I recall, although it wasn't as severe, you know, we had a we had a swine flu pandemic of yeah. not the order of magnitude, and a lot of this yeah. was talked about, and we ended up in we ended up in in similar problems arguably parts of Asia which had a much more um, uh, much worse experience of uh, original SARS, SARS-MERS which had a mm, mm, death mm. concentrated had maybe had maybe some planning but it overall talks to the difficulties we have of state capacity <coughs> within within healthcare thinking um, I think actually the UK's got a very specific problem because it spent uh, so much less on on health as a percent of GDP as, as uh, versus a lot of OECD countries even excluding the US which is mm. um, unusually high but maybe from a more operations um, maybe policy background or, or even even thought you know what would your reflections about now uh, you know what we should be doing or thinking maybe through the lens of hospice care I mean part of it seems to me hospice care should definitely get more state funding that's <coughs> an obvious win-win and part of the mission of a country like uh, ours um, you know, in, in Britain, which which supports that, maybe harder in some other countries which might not have that support, but certainly here. But um, aside from that, I'd, yeah, I'd be interested in in your thinking. You know, I think this is uh, this is really unhelpful, but I think this is almost impossible to answer, is because I think almost by definition you end up fighting the last war. I wonder whether, and and actually, I wonder whether there is something about. What is your, and, and actually that the swine flu one is really interesting because I was in the Department of Health um, as a special advisor around the time, both that we were preparing for a flu pandemic um, and also when swine flu started, this is in 2008. And actually, you know, th there'd been this lot of chat about kind of the pandemic being over the hill and, and, and flu being a really big thing. This would have been in sort of 2007 when I first went to the Department of Health. But then it arrived in, actually arrived in the beginning of 09, I think, sorry. and. And so there was a lot of kind of Cobra meetings and like buying a lot of Tamiflu. And it, it kind of was a bit of a damp squib. And then we had vast amounts of Tamiflu that we'd acquired. And I mean, as was typical, there was then a huge amount of kind of backlash for the amount of wasted money that we'd spent sort of buying up Tamiflu from J GSK when it turned out to be not a big deal in the first place. And that's just one drug against one strain of, of, of one kind of condition. And, I don't know how you begin to, I don't know enough about the epidemiology about how you begin to prepare for a multiple types of, you know, it might, the next one might be a flu pandemic, it might be a coronavirus pandemic, it might be some other kind of virus altogether. 
what and I don't know how you begin to you know masks of the surgical variety may not be the kind of thing that you need at all maybe you'll need kind of the, the bigger N95 masks and that will be the next problem and again I do think you've got this kind of money withheld versus money spent kind of problem I wonder whether there is a much broader understanding of public health that came out of particularly the East Asian countries after SARS so for example things like mainstream mask wearing and that there were certain sort of lessons about how you manage epidemiology, how you manage public health that isn't necessarily about pandemic, but is about, for example, if you've got a cold in the old days, we would all stagger into work, you know, that you don't go into work with a cold, that you just, and it doesn't matter whether you've got COVID or, you know, it's nothing to do with whether you've got COVID, it's just that you don't, you don't go into work with a cold because actually you'd be spreading around allergy. Or that you, as a matter of course, if you are feeling unwell, you wear a mask on the tube. Now, I think there is a real difficulty because we haven't had that kind of culture and leadership. But we've seen over the last 20 years that, for example, mainstream mask wearing pre-COVID pandemic was much more mainstream within East Asian countries than it has ever been here. I mean, if I turned up with a mask, a surgical mask, as a, as a, as a British white British woman on a, on a London tube, uh, people would have looked at me like I was bonkers. Whereas actually that's been much more mainstream in East Asian countries. So actually maybe we start thinking about how we handle public health differently as a result of this, that, that would just be applicable to a range of different potential lurgies and public health situation, rather than trying to kind of bet on what the next one might be. Because then you, then you end up sort of stockpiling for the next coronavirus thing. And maybe you do then end up destroying millions and millions of pounds worth of kits. And, you know, that's millions of pounds worth of kit that could be given to diabetic nurses, sick children, hospices, you know, insert your favourite kind of political... Yeah. I hadn't heard that articulation either, and I think that's, that's quite wise. I do think it raises some questions about, I guess, process, culture and leadership that we could learn from if we could do it, to use uh, COO speak, if we could actually execute on it. But for instance, clear messaging would have been great. Yeah. It still, it was still would oh. be great and would be great yes. in the future. So if there was even just like a little, I guess it's a comms department, but, but someone who could, who could do this kind of very clear messaging infographics, almost like a community, it's a, a, a social science skill, I guess. And then to put some of your points, I don't even know whether it needs that much money, but someone, some state capacity, which can make decisions very quickly realize when it needs to put some of these processes in place and then get hit go on the processes where they can where they can cut through some of the some of the checks and balances that you definitely want in normal times you probably want to speed yeah. up during pandemic time. and we saw this actually we, we kind of did it with vaccines right with vaccines. the usual length of safety testing you could tackle different risk reward because people are kind of dying on you now which actually it, it is a different uh, it is a different situation to be, and you have to change your mindset, particularly if you have, uh, I guess, an exponential disaster unfolding, uh, which actually some of these infectious diseases mm. could well be, then you need to handle that very differently. Deliberating yeah. checks and balances for three to six months is not going to help you. And so there and might you, be you some need, yeah. organizational. I think that's right. Yeah, I think that's right. And I think, I mean, I think I, I would hope that this has now come about, but I think that you know, the, the, the public health bit of the surveillance bit of PHE with the Public Health England bit prior to COVID 
was a bit sort of ropey and a bit, it was a sort of bit of a backwater over there and never got any kind of political attention at all. And the hope is that actually there is now much greater understanding and, and, and also genomic sequencing, which we've been doing in this country incredibly successfully and very, you know, has been integral to some of the ways in which we've been tackling the virus. You'd hope that some of that would continue. I do think a lot of this, though, starts with political leadership. I mean, one of the reasons the comms messaging has been so unclear throughout the pandemic and remains unclear is because the leadership is unclear and there is not a strategy. And I think that's also partly, and again, I am partisan, but I think this is also observable. This isn't just a criticism. This government, this, this is ideologically quite libertarian and not into what would be seen as kind of nanny state messaging so that, for example, restrictions lift and we do not maintain a mask mandate. I was in France last week where masks are emphatically obligatoire. And while you still get on the tube and see your person with a, the metro with a, you know, mask around their, their chin, by and large, that the kind of compliance is 95%. Now, I'm not saying that's necessarily right, but actually... There is something about very, very clear leadership about what we expect as a society in terms of our obligations to each other in a public health crisis and in an ongoing public health context. And unless that is set from the top, it's just going to kind of fizzle out because if it's set from the top, then money and kind of enforcement follows. And for as long as kind of the prime minister sits in a room with Joe Biden when everyone else is wearing masks and he doesn't, you know, I mean, it, it yeah, becomes very difficult, difficult to sort of enforce this sort yeah. of stuff. Although, I mean, that is I, I a political don't. point, but I do think there is something about actually the government needs to say there is a step change now in public health practice in this country, and this is now what we expect. Um, and I would say there's some very, what I would call, I guess, smart uh, libertarians who are all for masks and, and this type of thing. Um, Alex Tabarrok, um, um, who is a uh, George Mason University uh, libertarian and professor and some others uh, like him would say, well, you know, there are limits to liber libertarianism, right? And you can argue where that a pandemic is exactly the one where you want state capacity yeah. and you want these yeah. because you have a greater good uh, for doing it. They would be small state for many, many things, but this is one area which, the, which they would do. So even amongst a libertarian philosophy, I, I don't think they even applied their own um, their own economic thinking mm. uh, in a uh, in a consistent in a consistent manner. Um, maybe this brings us on to um, your uh, former life as um, a special um, advisor, uh, and maybe it's worth just touching on a couple of things. One is again maybe a day in the life. I think a lot of people, uh, I guess here in the UK we've had tick of it, and in the, in the US you have Veep. And everyone has this kind of imagination about what it is. And I guess particularly in this country, uh, because of the outsized um, role, uh, let's say in media attention that Dominic Cummings has had, we have a particular impression of special advisors or SPAD, <coughs> which, I, which I'm not sure is, is correct, but I mean, maybe maybe it is. So I, uh, maybe you'd like to say, you know, what is it that actually SPADs uh, did and do? And, uh, and has it, I know you're kind of quite distant from that world now, but mm. in your impression has that, has that evolved and um, what what good do you think spads can do and what do they do well and what to do badly but uh, you know yeah. what is it that spads are brought in to do and what is it that a good spad in your position uh, in your uh, thinking should be doing 
Okay, uh, so I, I, th I mean, I, I, I used to prefer as my television reference, The West Wing, but actually it has to be said that quite often my life was like The Thick of It or Veep. Um, the Thick of It was extremely well informed, I have to say, within a UK context. So SPADS are, is a shortening for Special Advisor. And within a UK context, uh, there are very few of them and they're basically personal, political, as in partisan, advisors to a cabinet minister and obviously within the UK we have an executive cabinet that's slightly different from from a US cabinet so each cab and, and also within the UK as you know us the, the by and large the civil servants are permanent and they're non-partisan so you're attached to a particular minister and in my case it was a chap called Anna Johnson who was a lovely cabinet minister um, in the late sort of 2000s and you are effectively his his or her presence on earth and you act both as as a transmitter of his view or advice of view of the world to the department to the wider sort of stakeholders to other people within Whitehall and beyond and you also provide him or her with personal advice and generally you have one who kind of focuses on communications and that's classically like the spin doctor and then you have one who focuses on kind of policy development and that was my role so my role was very much about within the departments that I was working in with, with Alan was about working directly with civil servants, with other stakeholders, people in number 10, whoever, to develop policy. And that was both ensuring that the policy that was being developed reflected Alan Johnson's priorities. Um, and it was also advising him on what we should do on various different policy objectives was essentially what it was. And then a kind of day in the life was, I mean, it was literally anything from West Wing to, to the thick of it. I mean, it, you, you have this, you know, at any one point in time, you are kind of progressing good long term strategy development, which is your West Wing bit. And, you know, that's a kind of like and, and some of the stuff I was I was a special advisor for Alan between 2006 and 2010 when Labour lost the general election. And there was something very few things that I worked on still lost. But one of the things that I was involved in in 2006 in the Department for Education was um, children in care, green paper, white paper and children in care legislation. And that was all about improving life chances for children in care. So uh, children who are looked after by the state because either permanently or, or for a period of time because their parents can't. And they, they have really poor educational outcomes, really poor health outcomes. I mean, they're really, really disadvantaged group of young people, children and young people. And I did a lot of work with a team of civil servants about developing policy um, in that area. And a lot of that is still kicking around today. So there is a bursary, for example, that children in care can get access to, to, uh, to enable them to access higher education, for example. And that was something that we developed back in 2006. So there are some really things that you can get kind of, you can feel quite heroic about. And that was something that was really important personally to Alan because he himself was orphaned when he was very young and was looked up, brought up by his elder sister. And in another context would have been sent to a Bernardo's home and put into the care system himself. So it was something as well as something that we all felt was very important was also something that was personally very important to him and something he championed. So you can get involved in kind of policy development that will outlast you and outlast your administration. And that's the sort of most heroic bit, you know, working with a group of people to kind of develop a strategy, put some money behind it, put some legislation in and really transform something. And then other bits are kind of comedically horrendous sort of things that are 
at you thick and fast that you need to kind of deal with either because they're coming up in the media or because you're having a bum fight with a stakeholder or you've decided to make a policy change and someone thinks it's a really bad idea and if you're not careful you're going to kind of get egg on your face and and that's the sort of thick of it kind of veep type stuff and then there might be just in the middle of that a day-to-day I mean, certainly as a special advisor, you're working across the, as a policy special advisor, I was working across the sort of full gamut of, go- of government policy within my department. So within health, for example, I might be dealing with hospitals or I might be dealing with embryology and, and abortion and, and some of the kind of very controversial issues associated with that. I might be dealing with child obesity and tobacco and some of those public health issues. I might be dealing with sexual health, you know, and some of it is just genuinely nonsense. Like, and the sexual health was one of my favourites where there was a group that I, I can't remember which junior minister it was, was putting together a, a group of people to develop some sexual health strategy. And she put together a group of stakeholders and it was going to be called the sexual health advisory group. And I sort of kind of got wind of this and went in and said, you do realise that that spells shag, don't you? And, you know, that, that that's your classic sort of the thick of it type thing. It and there is a... <laughs> there is a lot of that kind of stuff that does the rounds. Alan had a similar thing before my arrival when I think when Tony Blair, after the 2005 general election, there was the Department of Trade and Industry, and he, I can't, I, hang on, it was, it was something like the Department of Productivity, Energy and Industrial Strategy, or something like that. And Tony, and, and Alan was appointed as the new Secretary of State, and he went to see Tony Blair and said, you do realise that that spells penis? And Blair hadn't really twigged, <laughs> so he'd had to be going back to the Department of Trade and Industry. And so there's a fair amount of that kind of nonsense that that, that kind of trots around the place. Um, and a lot of it is just about, you know, trying to kind of balance very... Really, I mean, I think the other thing that no one really realises is that governments, although they often get things, mostly often get things very wrong, they're dealing with the kind of sticky issues, the like of which that most people cannot begin to get their heads around. So one of my my last departments at the Home Office, which is the, the same as an, an interior ministry in another country, and, and the Home Office is, is just deals with the most intractable. I mean, the, the first duty of a state is to provide security to its citizens, but you are constantly kind of trading, trading off security versus liberty. And it's, a, it's an area where you've got a policy kind of set of policy dilemmas. You've got a very, very strong political and, and, and quite often your, your parliamentary party has very strong sets of views. You've got where the media are at and and very strong sort of media campaigns running, very emotive public issues, and often some very difficult legal ones as well. And and trying to come to a decision about sex offenders or about immigration or national security or any, or, you know, whether or not you keep people's details on a DNA database, which is both a kind of individual liberty versus a, a national sort of security issue. None of these things are very straightforward. And so you just, you're trying to muddle through as best you can. Well, I'm, I for one, I'm really glad that it has very smart and clever and committed people like you uh, behind the scenes. I guess we're either side of the, of the house, as we'd say in in this country, but that a lot of people are dedicated to try and work on this. And and like you say, on those problems, because the the standard um, uh, financial economic tool is a kind of, opportunity cost cost benefit analysis and that can work where you can readily convert things into monetary values at sort of moderate estimates that you think you're getting right but actually the 
amount of policy which fits into that mold is not as large as you would thought mm. because then like you say if you get into issues of security or policy you are doing a cost benefit analysis or a trade-off but for things which you can't possibly put into monetary value mm. and are not time stationary and vary on all of these uh, different stakeholders so I can really see and you're sort of using that same tool right because you're trading off different or opposing sets of, of view yeah. and you're kind of trying so I guess maximize as many stakeholders in whichever thing that is to make them all happy, but you are not going to make everyone happy and you may well get the calculus wrong because who knows how big the, the weight of those various arguments actually in, in reality are. And actually you might've even got it right at that point in time. And then one or two years later, you know, like on the privacy thing, it completely changes because technology has changed or an incident yeah. Or, yeah. or something has happened. So yes, I get that. Um, maybe then pivoting completely to another job that I know you've done for a little bit was uh, volunteering in essentially warehouse working. Yes. So you've done a <laughs> uh, high-powered CEO role, uh, advised the highest uh, politicians in the land, and you've done essentially what would be associated with a working class job as yep. uh, stacking things in a warehouse. So I was yes. interested in your reflections about what's that like i guess a lot of people assume that it's um that it's not a very nice job but if you look at for instance conglomerate reports about people who work in amazon warehouses and and yes it is quite hard and it's not the most glamorous job uh, net on average um people actually do surprisingly well off it and maybe that's part because actually minimum wage for warehouse stacking because of digital and where we've all gone mm. is is actually quite close to where living wages are or it's actually above mm. a mean it's actually you get now more in warehousing than you do say uh, burger flipping but um that aside uh is that is kind of an intriguing force but yeah what's it like working in a warehouse <laughs> so i should probably just explain what i was doing so i um i gave up my job in march and um, we're now speaking at the end of September. And one of the things I decided to do was volunteer one day a week um, for a charity called City Harvest. There's actually, and it comes from an American brand, actually. I think the City Harvest in New York, possibly in other cities, which is about um, redistributing surplus food from restaurants and uh, kind of retailers to um, food banks and hostels and refuges and charities that need it and so the work I was doing was basically in a warehouse sort of sorting fruit and vegetables or sorting or stacking um, kind of dry goods or pantry goods to go to charities and it was manual labour um, it was quite hard uh, it was surprisingly hard actually I didn't feel like I needed to go to the gym afterwards um, and it was I really enjoyed it I think one of the things to start off with is that I I was coming at it as a previously quite senior person working in a job that was using my brain, actively wanting to do something that was completely different and actively choosing to do something with my time. And I think there is something very different when you step into something as a volunteer than when you are paid to do it. And it is, it is, it is hard work. I mean, I was doing one day a week. I think doing that 40 hours a week or 35, 37 hours a week would, would be quite tough going. Um, 
And I did really enjoy, I think one of the things I was really, I used to, so I, I, one of the things I found was I had to not put my COO hat on when I went to the warehouse. And one of the things I loved about it was that I could clock on, be told what to do. And so long as I worked hard, I could just clock off again. And I really like not having that sense of responsibility. 10% more efficient if you change this process. Right? <laughs> but equally, it was really hard not to sort of look at it and think, how would I do this differently? And I've not run a logistics business, which is essentially what it is. You've got goods in, which is being donated by people, which you have to process quite quickly you put in freezers or in fridges and and then kind of get it out again quite quickly before it spoils to to charities one of the things I was thinking I do remember sort of thinking about though and I was thinking about how you would lead a team within a warehouse environment is that warehouse work is it's hard work and although I think the um the cause was great it is nevertheless I mean it's it's kind of shit job type work it's not career job um, what was, and I think the charity, one of the things I was sort of thinking about was, was how would it feel to be doing this sort of 37 hours a week? And I think one, and, and I was thinking that in part, because how would I lead this team? Because I thought, thought I saw some behaviors that I would, you know, if I were a bit, I thought the management should be a bit all over, but actually it's, I think when you've got jobs where people are coming in to do pretty relentless tasks, I think you have to be realistic about what you can expect of them in terms of their engagement with their work. I certainly, I think that what I observed was that people who were being paid to do the job, I think it, I think their enjoyment and their fulfillment depended hugely on their colleagues. And that was the first thing that I thought was really interesting compared to working within a graduate environment or working with a bunch of healthcare professionals where you, where actually your colleagues matter, but so do does the exercise of a skill in which you have trained. And you don't have that when you're in warehouse work. And warehouse work may well be kind of substituted for driving work or for any other kind of not great job paid at probably minimum wage slash living wage just. And so actually what is going to keep you there, the cause is not enough. The usual stuff that you use within a charity environment is quite often dependent on people who are very committed to the cause or who are key workers who really want to help out with X cause. And you don't have that with warehouse work to the same extent, even though it's for a good cause. And so one of the things I sort of really observed was what, you know, it's, it's, it's a kind of, you'd probably, it's a substitutable job for any other sort of stuff you might do. You know, you could go off and, work for DPD and you'd probably get paid the same amount. It's sort of slightly less hard, it's less hard work, physically hard work, but you're doing it on your own. So I guess the sort of net net, what what, what is it that you want from a job in a short period of time? Um, yeah, I've always been slightly suspicious of, so I'm thinking about purpose and, and mission led, which is great, it's all fine for us in you know a healthcare job you're saving lives yeah. or yeah, yeah. helping people's pensions and or you're dealing with technology and you're venting a really great product but yeah if you're uh, cleaning floors or stacking shelves there is a sort of I think it might even be apocryphal but you get this there is this story about I think it might even been like the US White House and the president asks to, to the janitor what are you what are you doing and they're saying oh I'm helping put a man, on the, a man on the moon but yeah. I, I, I actually suspect the story's made up because yeah. actually people don't feel like that because the job isn't isn't very good and to have that sense of, of of purpose even when it's more direct so cleaning in a hospital you probably are really saving lives yeah, because you're you killing bugs and those bugs don't get it. and that's actually quite direct but I don't know really uh, I've only spoken to a, a couple of cleaners and janitors and, and they don't and they don't feel that half the time it's it's outsourced uh, so I do wonder whether we do need to to think about it or not but again 
With it's no interesting. I, th I think there is that thing about direct, about direct cause. And I think certainly my observation within the hospice was we had outsourced cleaners as well, but they were superb. But we had outsourced cleaners who had been with us for 10 plus years. And in fact, we treated them as employees when we came to give them like long service awards. And that was in part, and, and you know, they weren't being paid well. Um, I mean, they were being paid London living wage because we paid London living wage, but they weren't, it, you know, it was still cleaning within a kind of hospice environment. But I think that was two things. I think they had good employers uh, who treated them well with respect and nice colleagues. But I also think within a hospice environment, you, you, you get to see the patients. And I think there is something that's, what, what was really easy or easier for me leading a team within a hospice building. And the analogy was actually our retail colleagues who were spread out in shops was one of the things it was always much harder for them because if you're in a shop and wherever you know you only come to the hospice maybe two three times a year it feels much further removed the cause and so you have to give them some, you know you've got to keep them ticking over for some other purpose because the cause is not enough to keep you going if you don't get much exposure to it and if it feels that further removed whereas when you're physically in the building and you can see patients and you can see family members there is much more a sense of purpose. You know, I think that the janitor who puts the man on the moon, the, the janitor or the, the cleaner in, in the hospice would absolutely have said, I'm here to look after patients. I think everyone in that building, whether they were a finance assistant or a cleaner or a porter or a doctor knew why they were there. And that, that you know, it's not for everyone, but that was what gave them purpose. And I think you can do purpose in that environment. I think it is really hard when you're further removed and you're basically doing a job that is much more indirect. Yeah, that mission-led, when you can see the mission in front of you, I think that's that's definitely a thing. Great. Oh, well, maybe that brings me to the final two uh, questions. Uh, so one would be, um, how should I have a good death? Or maybe you could think about it uh, maybe in uh, your context as well, if you, if you prefer it's easier. So I've written a well. I haven't done any of the what I should have done as a, as a letter thing or stuff like that. Thankfully, I don't really have a porn stash or anything, which means that I wouldn't want my... Uh, my mum to look through my stuff although I should probably say you know I've got notebooks and things and, and some of it probably people wouldn't realize is, is as important to me uh, or not I've now taken on board uh, your notice that I shall try very hard not to die uh, in a hospital and I think obviously Please dying don't. at home is probably uh, is probably good I'm probably not quite as prepared as I should be on some of the things but I feel having a will and some and some things is probably slightly above where the average person sits. Um, I'm trying to think about, well, I haven't developed how my funeral service would work or even any songs or readings or things like that, which I'm, I'm actually working on that, uh, thinking about what I should do, but any thoughts or tips or advice on how someone or maybe someone like me should think about having a good death? So I think you're well ahead of most people is the answer. So the, there's a kind of basic stuff about death men, right? So that's your kind of wills. And, and there's, there's the admin you need to put in place. So absolutely, if, particularly if you own property and particularly if you have kids, you need to have a will. And there's just no two ways about it. The number of people who still don't have wills despite earning property and having children is, is still sort of extraordinary, actually. I mean, it's and you can get a will off the internet. You don't, you know, it's not, it, it, you don't need to spend squillions with a solicitor. 10 pounds or whatever, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's really free. straightforward. And, and, and that's because the grief involved in intestacy, and if you have any complexity at all in your family arrangements and or you're not part married, you're partnered but not married, 
certainly in this country in the UK that will create or in England sorry that will create all sorts of problems some of it goes to the state or the queen rather some than who wants to the state, it oh, and no. if you are not married in England but you are partnered your common law partner does not have a right to your estate um, so I mean it's just you do not want to die in test state so I think there's some basic death men about sort of how you know your, your, your will which is a good start and actually I think also the other thing that I think is really important for everyone at whatever age, and this, start, this stuff is a lot easier when death is not on the horizon, it becomes a lot harder when people get older and, and or when they're diagnosed with a, with a life-limiting illness, is actually to talk to your partner or your next of kin or whoever about what you want for your death, but also for your care and also what they want too. So one of the things that always is, is and particularly if you haven't got, if, if you were unfortunate enough that something bad happened unexpectedly and you, you kind of pitched up in hospital, do you want, you know, do you want to be treated at whatever cost? I mean, you know, do, I mean, people always say, well, I don't want to be a vegetable. Well, that's not sort of massively helpful. If you were diagnosed with a life limiting condition, would you want to continue to read treatment? Would you still want to continue to receive antibiotics? Would you? And some of that will change according to what happens. But actually, it is surprising the number of people who haven't talked to their partners about, or their, their next of kin or their parents or whoever it is about what their wishes are in respect of um, death or if they found themselves in a very serious condition. I think certainly for, I mean, one of the things I always say, and I'm very delighted here, you don't have stashes of porn around the place, although, you know, it's totally your bag if you do. But one of the things I also say to people is, you know, think about, do you have something that you don't want your parents to see if you were to find, you know, because actually it would be no bad thing to go and talk to a friend and say, top of my cupboard, there's a little bag with some stuff. And can you just remove it before my mum starts clearing stuff out, whether that's porn or sex toys or whatever. But, you know, just thinking through some of the kind of practicalities. I think, you know, funeral stuff is, is great um, because I think the more that you're able to think and talk about it, the, the better that is for the, the family and the, who are left behind. I mean, one of the sort of classic things you get is that, is that a family member turns up to, no one's talked about a funeral and what's wanted, and they turn up to a funeral director often, you know, having had no sleep and, and the height of grief, and the funeral director says, what do you want for the funeral? And they haven't got a clue. And the next thing the funeral director often says to try and help is, oh, well, what was their favourite song? And then you can't think about their favourite song. And then you go off on one that you've spent 30 years with this person and you don't know what their favourite song is. And actually, that's all nonsense. But but I think that, that thinking about your arrangements now helps someone for the future. But I think the other thing is that what we want changes over time, right? So, but, and, and it will change again once you become older and sicker. But, but starting to normalise these conversations means that you can flex over time. So, for example... I have always thought that I would be cremated just because like 80% of people are kind of cremated in this country and I have no faith and I'm not interested in the burial. But actually, the more I look into it, the more I think actually I'd quite like a natural burial because actually, if you think about the emissions involved in cremation, that, that's pretty kind of grim. And then you get a whole load of sort of ashes that are basically inert. And in this country, there isn't yet what there is in the US, which is the in some states in the US, a, a natural organic reduction where you can kind of compost, basically compost someone and produce soil, which I think is amazing. But, but in this country, you're only in the UK, you're only allowed to bury or, or cremate someone. So I would want to be now buried in a natural burial ground because I think that's more environmentally friendly than kind of going off into a, a kind of cremation. So I think you just sort of change some of these things over time. But the more you can start thinking and talking about these things, and some of it may be really 
basics. So I have written down on my wishes, like one of the things that would drive me absolutely nuts is if I were unable to communicate or semi-conscious and someone were putting like heart FM or something radio on the background, I mean, that would just, that would set my teeth on edge. But if I were unable to communicate that, that would drive me nuts. But if someone's just going to put like a gentle radio three or radio four, that's fine. But there are some things that I just, you know, one of the things I've put in my wishes, for example, in case, and this is sort of in case I got knocked down or something is I'm really short sighted. So I wear contact lenses, but if I got taken to hospital and then I had to be taken into hospital for an extended period of time, someone's going to need to remember that I've got glasses. You know, you might have a dog. You might want to kind of write down somewhere that actually your dog, you know, you want your dog to be looked after. And maybe you want to think about who your dog should be looked after in your absence. So that's both a bit about care and a bit about death. But I think the more one starts thinking through, if I were knocked down or I ended up suddenly in hospital, because that's sort of a bit easier to get your head around than suddenly having a kind of awful diagnosis, what would I want people to know, both in terms of my care, but then potentially if I were to die? And actually just to talk to people about it. Start normalising those conversations and then it becomes easier at the point at which you really do need to have them. That's fascinating. I think we should all think about death more often and I think I should think about it uh, a little bit more. So final question then is, do you have any thoughts or advice for people? I guess I'm thinking more young people, maybe people who are interested in politics or public policy or generally interested in what um you know the kind of things that you've learned over your career or life oh goodness me my life advice i think if you're interested in politics and public policy i think that is fantastic i think one of the things that i have learned is that there are many different ways to do that um and actually you can make a difference in you can make a difference in mainstream politics in the way that I did. So I had, you know, long engagement in the Labour Party and I was, you know, I was that kid that was running a general election run, doing my GCSEs for the Labour Party and all of that kind of stuff. And that is one route through a political party and through Westminster or through local government. But actually there are many other ways to make a difference and activism matters too, matters hugely. And in fact, sometimes activism matters more. And one of the things I've learned through doing operations is that actually it does, it's not all about this kind of highfalutin stuff that happens in Westminster and Whitehall or in Washington or wherever the seat of government is. I mean, self-evidently, because for most people, life goes on irrespective of what's going on in government. But I think when you are committed to making a difference in a public policy field, it's quite easy to be drawn to thinking that that's all that matters. And it, it's fantastic and you can make a difference, but there are heaps of other ways that you can do it. And I think the older I get, the more I think about both either directly involved in operations or, or activism. The, there's so many ways to skin that cat. And I think the main thing is to, to show up and do something about the stuff that you care about. Great, show up and do something. So um, I'd like to thank you. I don't know if anyone's really done it before, but you've had uh, enormous uh, public service and an enormous service to uh, family and people all around London and you know, next chapter in your life and everything. But uh, I think you've had uh, an extraordinary life already. So uh, Claire, thank you. thank you very much. Thank you, Ben. That's very kind. Bye -bye. If you appreciate the show, please like and subscribe as it helps others find the podcast.